Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It's already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We're going to jump over to the end of chapter 2, where Solomon just sort of sums up this theme that we're going to look at this morning. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool works, walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise man dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after the wind. Father, with faith and hope, we thank you for this word. It feels a little heavy. But I'd say, God, all of us somewhere in our story have uttered words like this or thought, thoughts like this or definitely felt feelings like this. So we ask you today by your Spirit to guide us into the truth. We pray today that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. And we pray, God, that you would give us hope in the gospel of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. I wasn't the greatest student when I was in high school, but I think I remember reading actually maybe one or two books of all the many that were assigned. 
And one of them that I read at least part of was a book called Frankenstein. Now, if you were like me, you thought Frankenstein was the monster, right? But Frankenstein was actually the guy who created the monster. And there was something about the way that it described his thirst and his desire for knowledge that just really captured me at that age. One of the, the quotes in the book says how he was deeply smitten with this thirst for more and more knowledge. And so he just began to devour everything he could learn about life, philosophy, the science, the meaning of it all. And the more he found out, though, the more he became discontent, the more he longed to be more satisfied. And it led to this great experiment that he had that not only would he find the meaning of life, but that he would be a master of life, and through his knowledge, he would actually create it. And I don't know what it was about me. I wasn't the smartest person in the world. I didn't graduate with honors or anything. But there developed in me this sort of desire to sort of conquer the world through knowledge, through education. And because I was a Christian, I was a follower of Jesus, I thought, well, this is even better. And so I decided I would go to what I thought at the time was the best Bible college that I could go to. But what I learned soon after I got involved with all of this education, learning biblical languages, learning theology, things I was never taught in the small town that I was raised in, is that pretty soon all of this knowledge, instead of satisfying me, instead of giving me security, started to actually bring a lot more doubts. As things that I'd all never heard before were introduced to me, it made me wonder, well, what will I learn next that will be introduced to me that I'll change my mind on? And so the more I learned, it actually seemed the more I was tempted to doubt and to be disillusioned with what I had learned before. But still I had this belief that with the accumulation of books and knowledge would come meaning and satisfaction in life. And so as you begin to date and to pursue marriage, you begin to read books about dating and you think, I got this, right? I've read the book. And then it's like, nope. <laughs> more doubt, more disillusionment. Then you get married, and you think, I'm going to read all the best books on marriage. And if I read all the best books on marriage, then I won't be like all of these other ignorant people out here who don't know how to be married, who are still fighting over the same thing years and years into their marriage. If you're married, you know how that goes. <laughs> right? A book. <laughs> don't save it. And then I wanted to, to be in the ministry, and so I go to seminary, more and more education, more and more theology, more and more learning, good things, great things that I've been benefiting from today. But again, did this satisfy my soul? Did this make ministry easy? Did this change how I was and how people were? No, it was helpful, but it was not going to hold. And then you have children. And you think once again, I won't be like all those other parents. Can you believe how they let their kids act? Can you believe what they do? No, I'm going to read all the books. <laughs> and then you read the books. And then we love our children, but they all turn out differently even though you use the same books, the same methods. And the pattern goes on and on and on. That education, that wisdom, that knowledge is a gift from God, but it cannot become our God. 
We can't figure it all out in this fallen world. This is what Ecclesiastes is saying. This is what Solomon is saying, is that so often we can believe that the answers to the mysteries of life, or even that the meaning of life itself, is going to be found through us gaining wisdom and knowledge and education with ourselves at the center. I'm sure we could take time this morning, if we would, to share stories of how when you in your life thought, if I just learn this, If I just gain this knowledge, then finally my life is going to be figured out. And if you've ever thought that, you know that was just a feeling. (laughs) And it didn't last. Now Ecclesiastes is certainly not against wisdom. It's a part of what we know as the literature of wisdom in God's Word. Solomon, whom I believe did write this book, was the one that penned many of the Proverbs, who was the one who could ask God for anything. It's as if God gave him your pick, whatever you want. And what did he choose? He chose wisdom. So this is not a message of anti-wisdom, but it's a message of wisdom put within the reality of the story of God. A story, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is how we shape our gatherings. You might not have realized it, but we've walked through creation already today. We've walked through the fall and confessed our sins. And we've celebrated the redemption that we have in Jesus through word and through song. But where Ecclesiastes really lingers is in that fall part of the story. Creation. This is how God created the world and intended it to be. But fall, the rebellion of humanity, the curse that enters the world, and nothing is how it was supposed to be. Everything is touched and tainted and tarnished. Now by sin, death, decay. This is where we live. Ecclesiastes resonates with so many people. It resonates with a lot of people who are unbelievers because they're like, Finally, somebody will say it out loud. This is where our broken, burnout, and bored neighbors dwell, and it helps us to see hey, God gets it. You know, God is the one ultimately who decided what books would be in our Bible, and He said, I want that there. I want my people to have the words of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, but it's unique even in the literature of wisdom we find in God's Word because it doesn't dwell with like a Proverbs kind of says, given things go how they're supposed to, this is how it works out. Ecclesiastes says, now let's talk about the exceptions. Now let's talk about when it doesn't go how it's supposed to. Let's talk about the absurdities of life. Let's talk about the mysteries. Let's talk about when things don't make sense. And This morning we see that in a world like this, education can only take us so far. It can inform us, but it cannot take care of the emptiness we often feel in our existence can point us to the one who can, but in and of itself, it can't provide the wisdom that our hearts long for. Why is this so? We're going to look at a few things through these verses we've read. First off is because life on earth doesn't always add up. It doesn't always make sense. We see this in verses 1 through 11. So life doesn't always feel like 2 plus 2 equals 4. What does life feel like sometimes? 2 plus 2, where'd the paper go? 
Two plus two, my pencil broke. And I can't even finish the problem. Two plus two, my house burns down. Two plus two, my husband leaves me. Two plus two, my children rebel. Two plus two, I lost my job. Two plus two, I want to get out of bed. The one who's telling us this stuff is the words of the preacher. It could be teacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's a lot of debate over who wrote this. We're going to skip that. If you want to talk to me about that later, you can. But it seems like given all the things that are described in this book, Solomon fits the bill the best. Who else could have had all the access to all the information, to all the knowledge, to all the things that we'll see throughout this book? But the main point is, with this being Solomon, we believe, if you read the book, regardless of how you might follow that, this is a person who actually had the access, had the money, and had the time to test this stuff to the extreme. So all of us in here, we want to be able to do that, right? Well, I, I wish I had all the time, the money, the access. Well, he did, and he's here to tell us, here's how it goes. I'm going to save you the time, save you the money. And he's telling us about the end of the matter here, the conflict that he comes up with in verse 2. It says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, this is a very important word for us to understand. This word for vanity is used some 30 plus times within this book. So it is very important. Now some of your Bibles will even say this down in the small writing at the bottom. And you can go check this if you want because I think this is very important. And this is something that I have actually really kind of changed what I thought on in studying this afresh for this series. Is that what Solomon is not saying here is everything is meaningless. There's even some translations that translate this, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. But if you want to go for yourself and research this word in the way all it's used in the book of Ecclesiastes, the way it's used in the Old Testament, and even the word, the way it comes over into the New Testament, is that what he's talking here is about a vapor, a mist. Sort of like if you've ever walked out into the cold air in the morning, and you've had a breath, and you see it, and then it's gone. So that certainly might feel meaningless, but what Solomon is saying here is something that's actually a little deeper. He's talking about the, the fleeting reality of our life. Nothing lasts. It's here for a moment, and it's gone. It's like trying to hold air, right? It's grasping the wind. Just when you think you got it, So there's a few ways we understand this important phrase that will guide our whole study of this book. And the first is, this, this word is talking about life is frustrating. We live in a fallen world as fallen people with very limited capacities. So life is elusive. You don't arrive. So let's say you're a gardener. And you think, I'm the best gardener. I'm not like the uneducated gardeners. But guess what you cannot control, gardener? The weather. <laughs> it don't matter how smart you are. It don't matter if you know how to keep the bugs off of your squash like I don't know how to. It doesn't matter if you know how to make your tomatoes grow because you understand how soil works and lime works. You can't make it rain. That's frustrating. It's life in a fallen world. Life also, as, as this word 
vaporous vanity. It's fleeting. It's short. We're going to see this. It's short. Those of you who are younger right now, it doesn't feel like life is short. But it's, it really is true. The older you get, the faster it seems time go, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 slow down. It's short. And it feels like it's just repetitious. You're staring at death, and you're like, oh no, what am I going to do? Laundry every day and die? <laughs> It's what it feels like. It's fleeting. And then it's also, it's not just frustrating and fleeting, but there's this futility to it. And by futility, again, not that it's totally meaningless, but it's just that it misses its purpose. It's not the pattern. God set up the world to run in a certain way and said it was very good, but through sin now everything is disordered, everything is disrupted, and so things don't go the way they're supposed to. So even if you complete your bucket list, right? This is how our world talks about dealing with this meaningless of life, right? I'm going to get me a bucket list. Well, even if you complete your bucket list, there's still a hole in the bucket of your heart. You can go to the Grand Canyon. You can go skydiving. You can go climb Mount Everest. And what Solomon is saying, hey, I, got, I did it all. And my soul still wasn't satisfied. And so he gives us this context then, another important phrase. And we're, we're, we're touching on some introductory things here this week, but this is very important. I want you to understand this, this vanity, the frustration, the fleetingness of life, the futility of life in this world, but also it's a life that's under the sun. And so what he means by this is important too. Life under the sun for Solomon, he's not just saying, well, this is life without an eternal perspective. He's not saying this is how life is for people who don't know Jesus, who aren't in the kingdom of God. Certainly some people think that's the truth, but I don't think so as we read through this book and see it in light of the overall gospel story. What he's saying though is life under the sun is the reality of life in a fallen world. This is how it is. And guess what? If you've been a believer for any amount of time, it's how it is for you just as much as it is for an unbeliever. It's not like it's raining on your garden and not raining on theirs. No, but the wisdom literature said God sends rains to the just and the unjust. It's not like some of our babies don't die. It's not like divorce can't come into our lives. It's not like believers don't lose their jobs. No, we experience the same life in this frustrated, futile, fallen world. And guess what? We can say that out loud. And he just fleshes this out in verses 4 through 11. Verses 4 through 7 we see this sort of uh, picture of, of imagine this thought that we're gonna, our generation is going to change the world. Right? Well, as generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Sun comes down, sun goes up. Wind blows, wind blows around. Streams flow back to the sea, there they flow again. So Solomon's saying, yeah, about every generation thinks we're going to be the one to change the world. But just kind of look back in history. 
right? We don't even got to go that far back, right? The 60s, right? We're going to change the world. There's going to be peace, right? And we're all just going to sit around and sing Kumbaya, and no more war will ever be. Not so much. (laughs) The 70s roll around. The 80s roll around. The 90s roll around. And some things change, but ultimately things stay the same. Verse 8, another sobering picture of this. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon's saying no matter how much you know, no matter how much you have, at the end of it all, usually you get bored. How many of us in here thought, oh, if I just get that new iPhone, right? If I just get that new computer, if I just get that new toy, if we just get that new car, that new house, if I just have this thing for my hobby, you know, I just know when I buy it, I'm going to be fulfilled. And you probably felt good for a day or two. And if you think back, you've probably had that experience many times. And now you want something else. And Solomon's saying, and guess what? Next year you'll want something else. Verses 9 and 10, this picture, what, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. It's sort of this humanity on a hamster wheel. Or, now I need to exercise, so I'm not talking about against running on treadmills. I need to run on a treadmill, right? But if you run on a treadmill, right, you can break sweat a lot, and you can really think you're doing something, but you kind of aren't really going anywhere. And I think Solomon's kind of saying, that's a picture of what life is like, right? Man, we're, we just spend all this time and energy and sweat, and then we look down and <laughs> we didn't go anywhere. And then, man, talk about a little depressing here. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So basically, we're probably not going to be remembered by our great-great-grandchildren. If I was to say to all of us in here, tell me who your, let's add three, great-great-great-great-grandparents' names. If I were to say, tell me who won the Super Bowl seven years ago. Who won the, the World Cup 12 years ago? Who was the Nobel, last five Nobel Peace Prize winners? I mean, some of you really smart people might can get one or two of those. I can't get any of them. And these are the people who we would say are super successful. And none of us know who they are. We need to feel that. This is why one of the stories in Greek mythology really uh, resonates so well with us. There was a king by the name of Sisyphus. And Sisyphus was a very shrewd and wise person. So wise, he could outsmart the gods in Greek mythology. And so this is like your smartest, wisest king. Well, finally, Zeus gets tired of it and says, I'm punishing you, because he had pulled one over on him. And so this was the punishment given to Sisyphus, is Sisyphus had to roll this giant boulder, this giant stone, up a hill. But Zeus enchanted this 
stone, this boulder, so that every time right when Sisyphus was going to feel he had accomplished it, right? He was going to feel that feeling we want, right? I really, I really, this really matters. My life is really meaningful. It was enchanted and it rolled back down the hill. So he was cursed for all eternity to push this ball up the hill and get right to the edge of having that gratifying feeling and it rolled back down. Some of you in here are saying, I think I know what that feels like. <laughs> I think all I do is pick up my house and then pick it up again. <laughs> I think all I do is go to work and come home, go to sleep, and do it again. We don't have to play pretend. If you're feeling sad right now, that's probably a good feeling, right? Americans, we don't want to feel sad. We want to be distracted. That's why we need Ecclesiastes. We see that God invites us to this. He invites us to get honest about life. To get real. He's not hiding it. And I think he's tired of us denying reality in his name. You know, I don't want to hear anybody tell me about something they've not experienced, that they don't get, they haven't experienced, they don't understand. And it's good news for me to know that I have a God who understands and reveals what it's like to live life in this fallen world. That is good news to me. That doesn't turn me away from God. That leads me to pray to God to say, God, I feel like I'm rolling a rock up a hill and it's just falling down every time. I can go to Him and talk to Him about that because He's invited me to through the book of Ecclesiastes. I can share with Him how futile, frustrating, and fleeting life feels. But what I want us to see and where we're, going to, where we're going to move throughout this whole series is that Ecclesiastes is not inviting us to become cynical and skeptical. I don't think Solomon here is at the end of his life and he's now just depressed. Now he's a cynic. Now he's a skeptic. No, I think what he's wanting us to do is lead us into a real and deep hope. But we've got to get real. Some of you may have been conditioned religiously that you can't be real. You may have grew up in circles where something's known as the word of faith, right? We don't say anything negative. Don't say negativity. If you say negativity, guess what? You just unleash negativity, right? So we have a no negative zone. All we're going to say is positive words. All we're going to say is words of faith. And then as we speak those words of faith, then great things will happen. And you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I don't even know how they would preach Ecclesiastes. I don't even have a category for that. But also some of us may have grew up in other types of cultures that may not be kind of that way off theologically, but you grew up in this culture of southern sweetness, right? Oh, bless your heart. Oh, we all just love each other. You know, oh, you're just so, we're just so nice to each other. And then we'll go talk bad about each other behind our backs. How are you doing? Oh, I'm just fine, brother. I'm just fine, sister. You know, the Lord's blessings He's just heaping upon me day by day. You know, and on Tuesday morning, you're, you know, you're just thinking, where's the Tylenol? You know, how do I get through this? And then somebody shows up at your door and you're like, oh, hey, how are you doing, right? Ecclesiastes is here to smack that person, including me, because trust me, that's my wife. I want to be just always positive. Kind of like, kind of slap us 
upside the head and say, all right, don't be Debbie Downer, but let's get real. It's the reason why some of us are so disillusioned with life. I came across this phrase the other day. If you're disillusioned with life, then guess what? probably means you had illusions. And that goes for the church as well. If you're disillusioned with the church, guess what? You probably had illusions. Did you think that somehow you stepped into a group of believers that the fall was not operating within this realm? Did you think your relationships within a church are not going to be frustrating? Do you not think that your activities and life within a church sometimes are not going to feel like they achieve their goals? Do you not feel like at times it's going to be just doing the same thing? Then you had illusions. No wonder you're disillusioned with the church. If you expected it to be heaven on earth, then you put it in the place of God. One writer said this, the more things change, the more they stay the same, commenting on Ecclesiastes 1. The universe is not designed, this fallen world, to enable gain to happen. And those who attempt to fly in the face of reality can only ever know grief and frustration in the end. This is so important right here. Life is not designed to contain gods and heroes, but mortal beings who accept the limitations that have been set upon their lives and get on with them in quietness and humility. Now if that sounds like, wow, bummer. I thought my life was going to be a Disney movie. No, life on earth is intended to have at its center the God who created everything and who holds everything in His hand. He calls us to love our neighbor and to care for the garden He has entrusted to us. Until we let go of our illusions, we'll never be able to love our neighbors, our family, our friends right in front of us. Life for us will always be out there. Life for us will always be next week. Life for us will always be when I learn this new thing or I get this new thing. And you will miss life. You won't love the people right in front of you. You won't be able to go have lunch today and just laugh and enjoy it. He goes on, the culture at large has decided it would like reality to be different. Thus it dethrones God, worships gods and heroes who burst through life's limitations while patently failing to love their neighbor. It says, think of most of the movies you've seen in the last decade. And the church cannot decide, it seems, which reality it will embrace. We have a decision before us. Are we going to accept reality in this fallen world and put God at the center? Or are we going to seek to ascend the hill and be God and get and trample anyone that gets in our way? Then he fleshes out here what we need, we, we need to see is that if we think education is going to fix that emptiness, if we think, well, the way I'm going to ascend the hill is just through gain, I'm just going to gain wisdom and knowledge. Like, you don't get it, preacher. You don't get it, pastor. You don't get it, Rusty. I'm going to be the exception. I'm going to figure this thing out. Solomon didn't have Google. 
Solomon didn't have Wikipedia. That great source of intellectual information. Solomon didn't have electricity. Well, Solomon wants us to see that in his day, he had the top of the top opportunity, access, and education. It wasn't enough. In verses 12 through 16, we see he pursues wisdom. He says, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So the assumption is more school, more degrees, more internships will equal meaning in life. Now those things aren't bad. We're not saying they're bad. but They're not going to give you meaning in life. The assumption is ignorance is our only enemy. Solomon says it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. That if you think just going for more and more and more and more and more knowledge to fill the emptiness, that that longing in your heart, you're going to be dissatisfied. So in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2, he sums this up, and we've read this already, so we won't read it all again. But basically he says, wisdom is better and foolishness. It is. Fools walk around in darkness. He says wisdom is better, but education is not probably going to make you happier. Some of the most depressed and miserable people I know are the smartest. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he also says that he sought out alternative education. So you're like, okay, forget it. I'm, I'm going to become a conspiracy theorist. Right? I'm not going to the in university to find out what's true. I'm going to YouTube. right? That's where we really find out what's true. You know? So he pursues madness and folly. So I'm going to find out about that dominoes that's on the moon. Right? That the government's hiding from us. Right? We're going to meet and interact with people like this. this and you may be one. You're going to think, I'm going to figure out. Right, we're, This is all some big scheme that the government's playing on me. I'm going to go find out the real truth. And then I'll really know life. Well, Solomon said, I kind of went that route too. And it was a dead end. He says here in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying education doesn't always lead to better ethics. That just because we have more wisdom and knowledge, that doesn't mean we're more moral, loving people. Wise or foolish. Either route will not satisfy the longing in your heart that you have as a fallen person in a fallen world. And if we think more and more education is going to conquer the evil in our hearts and in our world, then we just need a brief little history lesson here. The 20th century has been known as maybe the bloodiest century in modern history. One writer says, by any measure, the Second World War was the greatest man-made catastrophe of all time. We think of the Holocaust, the casualties, 
the bombs dropped. Also, an estimated 167 million to 188 million people of, of what we would consider today, right? 20th century, 21st century. Ostensibly the best and highest, most educated, latest culture that history of mankind has had to offer have been shoveled into early graves due to violence and unethical practices. Another person says in a book called Genderside, The War on Baby Girls, this was published in The Economist on March 10th, on March 10th, 2010, that during this period, the 20th century, 100 million females were purged from the human race because they were considered less worthy than males. Stalin is thought to have been responsible for the deaths of 20 million, Lenin, tens of millions in the Soviet Union. Mao's rule resulted in the deaths of several tens of millions of Chinese. Pol Pot killed 20% of the population of Cambodia. I'm just having to skip over stuff. We've got, we don't have time. And we think, yeah, but these were just ignorant, mean people. When actually each regime couched their objectives in honorable terms such as liberty, freedom, democracy, and the greater good to justify their murderous actions. Most of them backed by the universities and the cultures in which they lived. So I didn't hear what, what to skip over. The 21st century, not a lot better. Journal of Peace Research states that 33 armed conflicts were being waged in 2000. Global Security Dog Org lists 37 current ongoing armed conflicts in the spring of 2010. One writer, Sinclair Ferguson, says, we live in the most educated age ever, but we have more greed and more violence more crime, and most of the most deadly crimes are not happening among the uneducated people, but through the most educated. More education about racism, but are we experiencing any greater racial reconciliation in our time? More education regarding reproduction, you know what I'm talking about? But protection and, and even more abortions are what keep numbers down for unplanned families. Horrible things that happen that I won't list here in the presence of all the children that are not being found out in usually the worst parts of our town, but on college universities. The worst blasphemies, the worst immoralities, are not going to be found maybe where you find graffiti on the wall, but where you find bulletins hanging up in the halls of the greatest places we call learning. We need a sober assessment of the reality of education to fix us. Wisdom is good, and we need it. Education is good, but if you live like it's going to change your heart, and fill your soul, then you will be disillusioned. It will help you, but it will not heal you. 
wisdom, education will help you, but it will not heal you. We need to realize this when it comes to our children. Oh, we talk about it like it's some kind of God that's going to give their life just the great meaning. And we, want, we should want the best for our children. Trust me, me and my wife, we love education. She's a teacher. I've went to school over and over again. We care deeply about our children's education. We've made great sacrifices to make sure they have what we thought is the best education. But it is not going to change their hearts. And we need to make sure as parents we're not talking like that. Right? Oh, we, don't, we, can, we can miss gathering with the people of God, but we're going to be at school on time. You know, we may not have a family devotion, but you will get your homework done. If, one, if we have to choose, we're going with homework because that's what matters. How we cast vision for our children. Right, if you just get this degree, if you just do this, right, we mean well, but we have to be careful that the story we tell them is that this is what really was going to make your life matter. And if you can tack a little Jesus on the side, that'll be better. But you know, you'll get around to that later. Solomon would tell us different. This also means that we need to repent of our snobbery towards less educated people. My grandmother and grandfather only had a second grade education. But a lot of PhDs that I know could learn a lot from them about how to treat people with decency. As we go out to make the real Jesus known to a lot of people who don't have maybe a lot of education, we need to realize we have just as much to learn from them as they do from us. That wisdom is not merely the accumulation of knowledge for its own sake. Wisdom is much more than a test. And this is what points us to where Solomon brings us. We'll hit this quickly, but this is important. Solomon wants to leave you hanging until the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? So he has an answer at the end that we're just going to come to every week. Because I can't leave you right now. Right? That would be horrible. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Solomon says, This is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. Commandments. Solomon is not a cynic. He is what we might call a gospel realist. And what he does in the book of Ecclesiastes is he puts wisdom in its place and leads us to gospel meaning. So Ecclesiastes, like all the books of God's Word, have to be put within the bigger story. A story that begins with creation. Ecclesiastes is acknowledging there's a standard against which to judge the brokenness in this world. And this is the root of true wisdom, of true education. Education in the world, education apart from truth, is just a grasping after the wind because they don't believe there is any truth. If there's no right, how can there be any wrong? If there's no straight, how can there even be any crooked? 
If someone wants to tell you there's no such thing as truth, only, it's only what's true for you and what's true for me. All we have to do is look back at them and say, well, then how do you know that's true? You're assuming as much as I am. You see, the world has to borrow from the Christian worldview to even get started in the quest of education. But Ecclesiastes also acknowledges the fall, the disorder in the world. Again, our babies die. Our jobs are lost. Our friendships wreck. Relationships fade away. It hurts. We weep and we cry. But we kind of get it if we understand the story. It's a broken world. Bad things are going to happen. Because humanity decided to tell God to shove off. Well, we can handle it. Thank you very much. We're not sitting around scratching our heads when the next horrible thing happens in the world. We're on our knees saying, How long, O Lord? Ecclesiastes, though, points us to redemption because it points us to Jesus. Education cannot beat the vanity of life in a fallen world, but Jesus can. This is the good news. He is the Word who became flesh. He is, we don't have time, I wish we did, the logos, the center, the meaning that can hold. He's not the grasping after the wind. He is the truth of God. Education can't provide us with the righteousness we want. You can hang a hundred degrees on your wall, and I have them, but guess what? Those can't cover the sin and guilt and shame in your life. But Jesus can. This is really good news so that you can enjoy all of your education advancement, but you don't have to find your identity in it. Education can't pay for your sin or free you from your bondage to it, but Jesus can because as He goes to the cross, He bears not only the symptom that causes our futility in life, but He takes upon the curse that was at the core. He satisfies the just judgment of God that we deserve. That no amount of success in this world could ever attain. Education can't fill the emptiness and give us hope, but Jesus can. Because He no longer remains in the tomb, but He is alive. The curse of death does not win. So it seems absurd at all the death, decay, and disorder, and violence, and wreckage in our lives and in our world. But Ecclesiastes gives us hope because we know that one day all that is under the sun is going to be made right as our Savior returns and His kingdom rules forever and ever. And as we sing at Christmas, He makes His blessings known as far as the curse is found. You just imagine if we lived with this kind of hope that Paul gives us in Romans that really just summarizes Ecclesiastes 
one. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Listen to this. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the same word. To vanity. To this vaporous, ephemeral existence. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We live in a fallen, frustrating, futile world, but Jesus is Lord. And we have hope. So we can pursue wisdom. Don't go burn your books. Go buy more. But lay them all at the feet of Jesus. Take every thought captive for Christ. Pursue God as the one whom all things are for. Pursue Jesus as the one in in whom, as Colossians says, all the treasures of wisdom are found. Or else become like Victor Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Some of you will get that. Victor Frankenstein. You know why we think he Frankenstein's the monster? I think because he is the monster in that book. He's the one who plays God. If we use our wisdom, education, and knowledge to play God... We're not going to find meaning in life. We're going to find ourselves wandering in a wilderness of discontent and disillusionment. But if we worship Jesus and place wisdom under Him, then we can find a longing, the longing that we find only in the kingdom of Christ. Father, we thank You.